Hey there, and welcome to the Jimmy's Table podcast at jimmystable.com. I'm your host, Jimmy Humphrey. I'm curiously evangelical, politically homeless, and a dreamer of small things. On this podcast, I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. So if you have honest questions, aren't afraid to have difficult conversations, and want to have a little fun along the way, then pull up a chair. This podcast is for you. So today's episode 159 of the jimmystable.com podcast, I'm going to talk about what Alex Jones teaches us about the love of the truth. I know, there might be a certain irony in that sort of, uh, that sort of uh, title, because we usually might not think of Alex Jones and, and the love of the truth as being something that we should utter in the same sentence, but hear me out. Let, let's explore this idea and what I've uh, baked up for today's episode. So if you recall back in 2012, 26 people were fatally shot and killed in a horrific school shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. The incident was the deadliest school shooting in the history of America. And shortly thereafter, Alex Jones, who's a far right-wing conspiracy theorist and the host of the infamous InfoWars website and internet radio show, started to promote an idea that the entire incident of the Sandy Hook elementary school shooting was a completely fabricated false flag and hoax and that it was put together by gun control advocates who did nothing but want to steal our guns away from Americans um, and that the entire thing was staged with actors and this is just all one giant attempt to take away your right to own a gun. Naturally, this upset a lot of people including the families of those who died in the Sandy Hook school shooting. The families of the victims ended up suing Alex Jones for defamation, and he was found guilty. And this past week, a jury said Alex Jones should have to pay $45.2 million in punitive penalties as a result of the emotional distress he inflicted on the families of the victims of the school shooting. Jones is estimated to have a net worth over 100, maybe even 200 million dollars. Alex Jones has had a history of promoting popular conspiracy theories in our culture in the past. It's what he was best known for, and and people loved him for it. And to the best of my knowledge, he's one of the first major conspiracy theory individuals to have actually had to pay the price for his conspiracy theories. For what many conspiracy theorists don't realize is that many of the theories that they espouse and promote on a daily basis on the internet and the radio and in other places is actually considered defamation and libel in a court of law. The idea of bearing false witness isn't just a crime in the Old Testament. It's something that you can be held accountable for in the United States of America. Unfortunately, though, you and your garden variety crazy uncle on Facebook and Twitter will never have to pay a dime for promoting conspiracy theories because people like Alex Jones are rich, and you and your crazy uncle probably aren't. But the crime is just as real, and the ethical violation is just as bad. Just because you get away with it on a daily basis doesn't mean that you are free to run your mouth and say whatever bad idea that just happens to pop into your head 
or for you to just share that meme that you saw on Facebook, uh, that, that catchy headline that just was like, yeah, that makes sense, I'm going to go with that. Our nation may not hold you accountable for those things, simply due to it not being worth a prosecutor's time, especially since you're poor in comparison to Alex Jones. But at the end of the day, I believe that you can ultimately be sure that the judge of all the earth will one day hold you accountable. The Bible says that we will have to give an account for every idle word spoken in judgment one day. So be careful what you have to say. For ultimately, I believe the Lord is, shows that he is somebody that is ultimately concerned about things that center around truth. And whether that truth is raw, hard data, facts and figures, numbers, and things on charts and pie graphs, or things of a more philosophical and speculative and theological nature, I think that God ultimately takes truth very, very seriously. After all, he's the one that calls himself, quote-unquote, the truth. After all, and I dare say anybody who would dare call themselves the truth takes all truth seriously. For truth at the end of the day is ultimately about the reality of the world as it is. Two plus two is four. It's what it is that should concern us the most about the world. And things are not always as they at first appear to be. You can't always judge a book by its cover. And a first super casual glance of something can often be wrong. So we need to come to this world and the world we live in, I believe, with a sense of curiosity and exploration. In the same way, when we search for truth with this spirit of curiosity and exploration, we also must be careful what we say regarding the truth to others because that helps create a world that is ultimately false if we happen to be wrong about what we say. While there should certainly be room for us to openly theorize about the things that exist in this world and to think about things out loud in the presence of others about untested hypotheses and ideas and observations, I think we must be careful about letting our openly spoken theories become fact. Otherwise, we'll risk getting trapped into this realm of circular logic where the ideas we propose sound good enough to us. And so because they sound good enough to us, we sit there and say, well, they must be true. And because it seems and sounds good enough to us, we start acting like the idea that randomly popped in our head apart from any investigation and serious inquiry into whether or not that idea was true, we start treating as if it's true, and we get caught in this circular deadly logic in which we create entire fictional narratives and believe them to be true simply because we believe them to be true. That's a crazy world to live in, and that's a world I certainly don't want to live in. And I believe if we're to overcome this, we must ultimately be individuals who are lovers of truth. For things that aren't true, but pretend to ultimately be true, this ultimately creates an alternative world 
and is a usurping of God as the creator of all things. And when, when God created the world, he called it good and blessed it. So therefore, the peddling of falsehoods and lies is ultimately an assault not only on the creation that God created, but God as creator. No wonder the devil is called the father of all lies. Because there's nothing blessed about any of those lies and about creating a world in which there is nothing but the propagation of fictions. It's no wonder then, when in one of the passages of the Bible where the Apostle Paul talks about an Antichrist-type figure, that Paul connects the coming of the Antichrist as being grounded in a world that simply does not love the truth. And in God's judgment against such, God simply gives people over to the falsehoods of the world that they've created with the father of all lies. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8-12, through 12, New American Standard Version, that the lawless one will be revealed from whom the Lord will eliminate with the breath of his mouth and bring an end to the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in the accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not accept the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send them upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe that which is false, in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And while this passage may be, speci be speaking specifically about the Antichrist and you know, a very specific event in the future, I think we can still kind of glean from it ideas that we need to be individuals who love truth because there is a false, demonic, satanic influence in this world that peddles false signs and false wonders and deception that leads to wickedness. And then God just says in such things that, hey, you know, if you're going to peddle such things, if you're going to pollute the world with your lies and falsehoods, I'm simply going to give you over to the deluding influence that you're already so lovingly engaged in so as to further believe, cause you to believe that which is false so that you may ultimately experience the judgment of that very thing that you create in the world. So you might ask, though, why is it that we don't love truth, though? And to some degree, I believe this is because we are lazy. And to some degree, we are afraid. Truth usually isn't so easy to come by. It requires us to usually start digging for hard facts and then think seriously about those facts and even think seriously about how we think about those facts. We live in a world in which we prefer to confirm the things we usually already want to believe, which is why we turn time and time again, I believe, to the same sources over and over. We create our own algorithms at the end of the day. We don't need Facebook and Twitter to do that for us. We like these little feedback loops that we find ourselves in. And maybe one might even argue that Facebook and Twitter, you know, is the judgment of God on us and simply God giving us what we want to begin with in a very second Thessalonians sort of way. And you know, Maybe we return to these sources to some degree out of honesty and sincerity because 
we find these sources that we come to time and time again to truly be reliable and accurate sources of truth. But you know, at the same time, even when we come across accurate sources of reliable truth that prove themselves time and time again, we have to be careful that we don't become lazy and simply rely on those sources simply because we've grown comfortable with them in the past. Instead, we need to always make sure that we're always digging. You know, I recall when I was in Bible college at Lee University that Dr. Tatum taught that in his mind, of all the classes that he taught at Bible college, of all the theology classes, of all the ethics, pastoral preaching, counseling, and, and all those sort of things, to him, the most important class that he taught, he said, you know, happened to be what many students would consider the most boring of all the classes that you could ever take while you're in Bible college. And that's the class on hermeneutics. If you're not familiar with the word hermeneutics, hermeneutics is all about the method of interpretation that you use to understand what you're reading. Whether that is a book that you're reading, a newspaper you're reading, or reading of the Bible. And, you know, most people commonly when they read things, they just read it, whether it's the newspaper headline or the Bible, and they just say, well, there it is. That's what it says, right? But then they think nothing of the complexities that go into what they're actually reading about. And this is especially true, you know, when it comes to things about the Bible. They think they're, they, people read the Bible and they say, well, the Bible says that I believe it. And, and, you know, while that's certainly not an entirely wrong mindset to have, the mindset behind that mindset, <laughs> in truth, is usually kind of lazy. It just looks at the words as black and white or, or red and white, depending on what passage you're reading. Um, and it thinks nothing of the historical context of those words in which they were written. It thinks nothing about the audience that those pages were written to. It thinks nothing of presuppositions. It takes, thinks nothing of genre or literary style and, and that the author employed in their writing. It thinks nothing about the grammatical use of words and the sources that the author may be quoting in and outside the Bible when writing the Bible. Um, and so people often not, don't think about those things when reading the scriptures, and people often don't think about those things when they're reading the history books or anything else for that matter. And they read things like the Bible or other sources as if it were simply written to middle-class soccer moms going through the middle of a divorce. And, of course, don't get me wrong, while there is a very real sense in which Scripture transcends time and location and people, and, and there's just a sense of timelessness to the Scriptures. When you approach the Scriptures, there's a way at looking at them in which the words that were written aren't so timeless and were very real and had definite meanings um, that existed to people in time and place and culture and location and had meanings and, and interpretations of those meanings in a way that simply does not always so cleanly import to the 21st century of an American soccer mom going through a divorce, driving a minivan full of kids on the way to soccer practice. At the end of the day, the quest for the truth is just about as much as our approach to the process as it is to the actual outcome. Two plus two is four, and while the four is important, 
understanding the two plus two and how we get to four is equally as important. The love of the truth begins ultimately, I believe, with an inquisitive mind. And I think this must be differentiated, though, from the skeptical mind that we saw, you know, often popularized in the last couple of centuries and a lot of enlightenment thinking. An inquisitive mind, in my mind, is somebody who wants to learn, is always open to the truth, and happily embraces the truth wherever the truth is found, but continually remains open to new information and reassessing what they already know to be true when presented with new evidence. I believe, though, this is to differentiate from the skeptic who is forever nervous about ever making any claims to truth and who is obsessed with doubting for the sake of doubting. And don't get me wrong, there's a certain sense of healthy sense of doubt that I think you know, can be involved in our process and our uh, inquisitive process when we search for the truth. But I kind of re worry about people who never are able to actually grasp anything concrete or anything that they would claim to be true. The truth is something we must ultimately wrestle with at the end of the day. And wrestling, it's not easy. For truth is grounded in the world that God created and the world as it in fact is. And if that's the case, then wrestling for truth is in some sense a way of wrestling with God. For God created that very thing that we're approaching and trying to uncover. And wrestling with God is always a mighty act that, just like Jacob in the Bible, might cause our inward parts to become dislocated and rearranged and ultimately cause us to all become undone. I've learned over the years, you know, you need to beware of people claiming special revelations regarding the truth. And don't get me wrong, at the same time, while I certainly believe that there is a place for special revelations and such things, moments of epiphany and clarity that God grants us. Over the years, it's been my experience that many of those I've known claiming such things for themselves were ultimately lazy. And they were just looking for shortcuts to the truth. They wanted a revealed truth that didn't require careful study and inquiring of things, and the consideration of hard things. I think it's one thing for the light bulb to turn on after having done the real work of discovering truth and to have an epiphany moment in which everything just comes together. But that must only come together for those who have done the digging and those who have done the hard work. And people might sit there and think about Old Testament prophets and the revelations they had. And while there's certainly a real sense of truth to the idea that, you know, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and told Jeremiah to say, you know, there's a very real sense in which that didn't happen in a vacuum either. These prophets that we read about in the Old Testament, they were first and foremost careful students of God's word. They knew what the scriptures said. They knew the, the context of the world in which they lived. And they wrestled with that. 
And that's why often for many of them, speaking the prophetic utterances that they did was often a hard and daunting task because it forced them to wrestle with the world as they understood it and the scriptures as they understood it. And, and, but it wasn't just something happening to some immature person in a vacuum who was just sitting around waiting for Jesus to zap them one day. No, it was people who were serious about truth and the way things were. And it was from those, the spirit of that, for which they spoke. And it's, it's entirely foreign to the concept of prophetic or revelatory or epiphany-type wisdom and knowledge and understanding of things. That's a t- totally different mindset than that of somebody who just embraces a random idea of a truth that just simply happens to pop in their head in the shower while they're shaving one day. Of people who, who live in the shallow end. Who, people who just skim the surface of something. People who don't do the hard work. And I've discovered over the years that most people, what they propose to call revelation these days, or truth these days, is just them trusting random feelings of their gut while shaving in the shower. And don't get me wrong, our gut, you know, I believe in some sense God gave us our gut, yes. It's our experiences, it's, it's the things we've, you know, gone through life, and, and it's our instincts. And our guts, they definitely know a thing or two. But our guts are also full of fear and ignorance, ignorance and biases and doubts and lust and greed and all sorts of other things that ultimately get in the way of us truly knowing things as they in fact are. Real truth is discovered by careful examination and wrestling. There's simply no shortcut to it. But we all like the shortcuts, don't we? We don't want to have to show our work at the end of the day on our math homework, right? We like the revelations of the fortune tellers and the prophets because they keep us from having to wrestle with truth and ultimately with God. For real truth can scare us. For it it ultimately forces us to confront a reality of a world we might not be prepared to like. Truth can wreck us. Which I believe is ultimately why there's so much deflection and sleight of hand in this world and why we ultimately engage in lies. Because like the people from hell who visit heaven and C.S. Lewis is the great divorce, the reality of heaven is just too painful for people who live in hell to deal with. In his book, in his book by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, highly recommend it. It's a pretty complex read. But in his book, People from hell cannot even step on one blade of grass in heaven without being inflicted with a great deal of pain. Because the realities of heaven, the truth of heaven, is simply too great and too painful and too sharp and too real for people from hell to experience. It'd be the equivalent of you and I stepping on a sharp knife. It just pierces right through them. So instead of being the shadowy creatures from C.S. Lewis's vision of hell, I believe we need to become people who love truth. And we must refuse, to the best of our ability, 
to listen to and propagate the ideas of conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones and others. We must become lovers of the truth. For the truth will ultimately win the day and we'll all have to force to be given account of it one day. And ultimately, in his day of reckoning in court, Alex Jones was ultimately forced to confess the truth. And he finally was forced to denounce his lies. Which was a powerful moment that this guy who propagated all these lies about Sandy Hook, Sandy Hook being a conspiracy to of the government, of, of actors, of a false flag to come take our guns, was ultimately forced to confess that he made the entire thing up. Lies are terrible things. Lies will ultimately be exposed. The Bible says that one day all things which are hidden will be revealed. And that ultimately one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, jimmystable.com, what Alex Jones teaches us about the love of the truth, episode 159 of the jimmystable.com podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd love your feedback. Email me, jimmy at jimmystable.com. And if you haven't had the opportunity yet, go over to jimmystable.com slash subscribe and find out your favorite way to subscribe to this podcast, whether it's through a free email newsletter uh, that comes out on a weekly basis or through Apple, Spotify, or all the other fun ways you may listen to this podcast. Um, if you haven't followed me yet on social media, you can follow through Facebook and Twitter. Just simply go to jimmystable.com um, and you can find links to Twitter and Facebook through there. And if you haven't had your opportunity yet to leave a glowing five-star review about how, man, Jimmy is just this guy who loves the truth and tells it like it is in a very compassionate and fun and intriguing and thought-provoking way, well, I encourage you to go leave your truthful, full-of-heart, five-star review at Apple and Spotify. Everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, jimmystable.com, where I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. Take care, everybody. God bless, and have a good one. That's all I have to say about that. That's the right on, man. You said it all. <laughs>